Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our Best of the Decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. This week, we are at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, sending regular dispatches about the highlights in its independent film lineup. One of the most highly anticipated movies here is called The Last Thing He Wanted, from filmmaker Dee Reese, who previously directed Mudbound and Pariah. The Last Thing He Wanted is an adaptation of the Joan Didion novel, which centers on a journalist who gets caught up in shady international business when her father gets sick. The time period is the high Reagan 1980s, and the story involves malfeasance in Central America, as well as gun running, family challenges, and the CIA. Anne Hathaway plays the journalist, Willem Dafoe is her father, Rosie Perez is a fellow journalist. Reese takes a kaleidoscopic approach to adapting Didion's typically complex narration, and I was very pleased to sit down with the director in Sundance to discuss her process, as well as pick her brain about the movie's ideas about modernity and identity. The Last Thing He Wanted premieres here on January 27th and will be available through Netflix in February. Let's go to our conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Common Podcast. Uh, we're at the Sundance Film Festival. My name's Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Common. And I'm very excited to be sitting down to interview Dee Reese about her new film, The Last Thing He Wanted, which is premiering here in Sundance. And it's... Well, I don't even want to get into it because there's so much, so many different ways into this film and so many different avenues the film opens. Well, first of all, welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for watching. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if we could just start by talking about what Sundance kind of means for you um, coming back here again. Yeah. So for Sundance for me, like I, of course, always have this special kind of like um, outsized probably nostalgia and like love for because it's the first festival I ever went to where I premiered my film Pariah and so for me it's always meant a place of connection with audiences and you know it's the first time because of its place in the calendar year depending where you start it's the first time someone's experiencing your work and so it always is you know filled with that kind of tension like ah oh, what are you gonna think and how's it gonna go but also just kind of like it feels like it feels like the film is completed at Sundance because it's like a film's not a film until someone watches it so this place for me is like that that place where it started and I've premiered every feature there that was premierable so yeah yeah no that yeah it's 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 almost like a homecoming in a certain way when you come back but I wonder if we could just talk about how the process went in getting it made because um, I know that's always a process yeah. and and it's a very distinctive kind of you know um 
text. Yeah, so funny, funnily enough, the process of getting Lasting Made started at Sundance. We were oh, here wow. with Mudbound, and so it's kind of like, okay, what's next? And I had read this Joan Didion book like years earlier, and you know, people love her nonfiction, but I love her fiction. I love her nonfiction too, but I really love love her fiction because it still has the same feeling and this kind of like um, unstoppable cadence. And so we were at a party for Mudbound, and so I was talking to the producer, Cassie Elways. He's like, "What do you want to do next?" I was like, "I want to do this Joan Didion novel. It's called The Last Thing You Wanted." It's amazing. He was like done. So he went and like optioned the book. And then at the party, my friend Marco Villalobos was there. And I was like, and this is the guy you got to get to write it. He was like done. So literally over a couple glasses of wine, this film got off to a start at Sundance, I guess, 2017. That's great. Um, And then you were shooting starting summer of 2018, is it? It was after the Oscars. Whenever the Mudbound Oscars were, it was that same year. We like... I remember after the Oscars done, we immediately went out and started like location scouting. So it was a great, you know, reunion with me at Inval, Inval Weinberg, my production designer who had done Pariah. And so she was like on a plane to Puerto Rico. And it's funny because there were three places. There was Colombia, there was Dominican Republic, and there's Puerto Rico. And I wanted to shoot the film in Colombia. And it's like, oh, well, let's just start closest in and work our way out. And so, you know, Inval went ahead and was just terrific in finding these places um, with her Puerto Rican counterpart, a location scout. And, and, there's so many airports and I forgot how many airports are in the story. And so there's so many airports that we had access to that we wouldn't really get any other place. So it was like, it's gotta be here. And also the thing I was interested in was diaspora. So I wanted to have this feeling of like African diaspora of like uh Latinx diaspora and Puerto Rico gave me that, you know, there's like Ponce, there's like the center of the city. There's like all these places where we could really get a range of faces and like a range of bodies and um, just create a universe. Yeah, let's talk about how um, what you wanted to do in terms of the text. Because when you have something, obviously, as, as a you know, um, knowing her books very well, mm-hmm. and I, I read another interview where you talked about them as very interior, mm-hmm. internal. How, how did you see it as something to that could be adapted? Was there a particular image that seemed that it was possible that was in the book? Or yeah, to me, it was the repetition in a way, and the fact that there was no why, and that the whole book is trying to get it why, and there is no why, and really the center of that starts with the Dick and the closest I could come to why was Dick and Elena. So this father daughter kind of love story at the center of it was what what drew me in. It's like trying to atone for the sins of the father. You know, I I could hang on that as like a basic kind of like motivation or even if it's misguided, even if it's not fully thunk through. Um, And so Elena, you know, wanting this connection with her father and like, in their relationship to me, I saw it as like something that, you know, there's great love, but then there's great hurt because it feels like there's maybe some abandonment there. And like Elaine is determined not to be him, but she's kind of doing the same thing with Kat. You know, it's just like more like formalized abandonment in a way. And so I like the cycles of it, you know, the repetition of it and how you try to so avoid something, you end up doing exactly the thing to like duplicate it. And um, I like how this character's kind of vision goes from being very wide and seeing to like tunnel vision by the end of the film where she literally just seems to be like um, so overwhelmed, like she's not aware of the forces or she thinks she's a step ahead, but she's not. She she has these like her, her, her blind spot keeps getting bigger. And so I just like that kind of unraveling, that kind of undoing of a person and like what that means. And in, in the story, three characters ask her why. And three times she doesn't have an answer. Like Jones is like, you could be gone. Like, why are you still here? And she doesn't have she, you know, says, oh, it's about the story. And then Jones says, mm, you know, that's what killed, you know, the reporters who couldn't get enough like Vietnam. And then the next person to ask her is Treat who 
I think is closer to the honest answer. She says, well, I did it because if I walked away from this, I'd walk away from my life, basically. And I thought that was a really kind of dark thing to admit that she could fathom. Like, she's reinvented herself so much. She's Elena Jankelo, Elena McMahon. She could see herself walking away. And then the third person who asked her is Paul, you know. And then... um, he just kind of turns she like she doesn't even attempt an answer and so like the idea of the repetition of the um this kind of like uncertain identity you know and for i think all my works i'm interested in characters who are wrestling like with their identity and elena at the heart of this is trying to figure out who she is in relation to the work what it is exactly like that she wants and why she's like escaping basically so, yeah yeah i mean what was so interesting um, i mean you mentioned diaspora and just thinking about where she is in the narrative, um, is she the center? Is she trying to be in the center? You know, is she because she's going to other countries where she's an unfamiliar footing, mm-hmm. so she's no longer the center of of the story in a way. So I was curious what you how you were thinking of her in terms of her as a hero or a protagonist. Like, how does that play out for you? For you? Well, the idea of centeredness, like that's a good way to think about it. I think she's always trying to be in the center, but the center's always moving. So she's always like approaching, but never arriving at the center. And then like in the last frame when she does arrive, you know, that has consequences, you know? And so, yeah, and that's a good way to think about it. And so for her, she's um, a hero, but she's flawed in a way, you know? And like the kind of subtext I'm trying to work in is that, you know, she doesn't know like she trusts the wrong people, you know, for the wrong reasons. And so, you know, in walks treat and you think, oh yeah, of course he's the guy. It's been Affleck. Like he's the guy. And it's like, no, like not at all. I like the idea of like, you know, she, she kind of feels like she has a read and then makes the exact wrong decision, but thinking that she's smart enough to stay ahead of it. And at the end of the film, it's the people of color who like had the right line. Like it's Alma who was trying to tell her there's a French intelligence guy. And if she stopped for a second and let that sink in, it'd be like, oh, of course it's this person, you know? And like, you know, it's Jones who's like, wait here, I'm gonna help you, you know? And like, she can't believe that he's a hero, you know? So in the, the subtext, I'm trying to work in how we hide from our heroes and who we see as like the savior and who's not. But um, Elena is like a tragic person in that, that she's acting surfacely for a noble cause, but really it's like, you know, a lot of hubris and like a little selfish, the cause. And um, she slowly comes to maybe admit that to herself, even if she doesn't like say it out loud to everybody who's asking her why. Yeah. And I mean, on on top of all this, the the particular time period it's Mm -hmm. in and the place is, just insane. I mean, when yeah. I was reading the the, the book, um, you know, the particular luridity of 1984. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like sweaty. It's shifting. Yeah. Yeah. We think we're modern, but we're not totally modern yeah. yet. So it's that idea of modernity. And I love um, Didion's like. To me, the intro to the book is a thing that like swept me into it. It's like this this idea of this like sustained reactive depression that we as a country were basically you know not realizing all the signs that we were like you know, in the wrong and slipping, you know, ever more quickly away from from ever having been right. And so, like, I love that idea. And she sets it off with that. And the kind of like the, the malaise of the country is like the malaise that she herself is suffering and like, but, you know, it's past tense, but I didn't see it then, you know. And so I love how that kind of monologue comes back around. And, you know, yeah, you got the Iron Contra scandal. It's like this time where and you got the campaign, the Reagan campaign going. So it's at a time where, like, you want to believe or people thought they believed in government. They thought they had, like, a beat on it, you know. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's like 
was he the first actor who's a president? So it's like, to me, that feels like a certain shift that we should have known. Like, oh, when an actor becomes a president, like, <laughs> that's when it's all over, you know? So I don't know. I just love that interest in the how those worlds are kind of like tectonic plates that like overlap and slide and bump against each other. And Elena thinks she has footing and can hop from plate to plate, but really, you know, gets crushed. Yeah. This also works in, in a neat way with the particular like narrator voice mm-hmm. that sets in the book that's this strange layered thing who we don't know who it is yeah, yeah that's all about the book there's this narrator so in the book this whole story is being narrated by someone who we don't know and it's like third person mostly and then it goes into treat some first and then it goes into Elena first so I love this shifting perspective and I love that we don't even know who's telling this story and that was a big challenge in the writing of it um, so with Marco start taking it on it's like how do you get into this you could start anywhere because it's repetitive and like all the themes are in every kind of moment you could start with the divorce you know before this you could start with the breast cancer you could start on the campaign trail you could start you know there's so many ends with like Elena's life and so it was just a fun mini faceted thing where it, it it was just an interesting just an interesting narrative to try to figure out how to structure and where to get and where to get out and so what i love about what marco did he starts it in colombia i mean sorry in um in salvador which kind of starts you know centers you and like okay this is who elena thinks she is you know and then because we know who she thinks she is then her kind of like unraveling is like um more interesting to watch, you know, because yeah. we kind of have a beat on it sooner. So. Yeah. Um, and how does that translate? Um, or I don't want to say translate. Separate medium. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're visual. Mm-hmm. How did you want to approach it? What was like your, your visual thinking visually for, for how to approach the perspective and, and, yeah. and all of this? So the visual approach or the visual imperative for me in making last thing was to really make the camera language move the speed of Didion's prose. You know, she has such this like relentless, you know, fluidity in her sentences. Her sentences are like paragraphs. And so how does a camera do that? And so that's why for a large part, the first part of the film was like all steady cam, long steady cam shots. And we attempted like one, like in the new Newsrooms. One of my favorite shots is like it's supposed to be like a crane, then diagonal down. We had to break it in two, so it's like a crane. Then we put the camera on like a zip line and zip line the camera down. And then a camera operator picked up the camera off the zip line and like followed the guy through the newsroom. So like the camera language was like is like the biggest um thing that I wanted to kind of like mirror her 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 language and like her cadence and um even in, so Bobby Bukowski's the DP and he was up for that and it was just great to go to these like location environments and be challenged by the spaces and like okay now how are you gonna make this continuous and um in terms of look Bobby had a bunch of old like Kodachrome images and so we wanted that Kodachrome look where the greens are kind of yellow the blacks are never quite black they're brown and everything starts to get a little muddy feeling and so that was the idea and then even like in the aspect ratio um we with like a square or frame so you get the feeling like you're always missing something oh if like if we just had a wider frame which is kind of like elena's vision if she could just see a little bit more you know she could have seen the 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 full picture and um you have to ask bobby but he got these lenses that were used the lenses were were from the 70s but used a lot like in the 80s and so because of the 80s story like we used like old lenses on like a very new format so it's like alexa large format but with these like 70s lenses old glass on it and it kind of gives it that feel without you know, just putting a general wash or veneer on the on, mm-hmm. the, on the image. So yeah, that's really interesting to hear about the sense of the squares and because mm-hmm. I often mm-hmm. felt she's boxed in right now. Yeah, you know, yeah. It really get that really comes across. And you can see, yeah, the, yeah. the claustrophobia of it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I also want to obviously talk about the the, the actors and and mm-hmm. and how because 
I always think it's it's always daunting for an actor that their performance is in pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one maybe more is in pieces. But yeah. um, just say starting with Anne Hathaway as, mm-hmm. as the center, not center <laughs> yeah. of it. How, what, how did you work with her on, um, in that? So with Anne, so she's such like a sweet person, like such a nice person. So it's like, how are we going to like get rid of the nice girl? And I was like, worried. It's like, oh, she's too sweet. And so and, and she, so I pitched the transformation, which she was game for is like, I really because Elena needed to be like sunburnt and like hair is lightened and like, you know, almost like almost wanted to like invert Anne, you know, so her skin is darker than her hair. And like, I wanted her to gain weight. So she gained weight for me even. And so it's kind of like it, that it started there with her, the transformation. And she was willing to go there and. And even just like the smoking, you know, just like I remember she came in my office like one of the first days of prep with a cigarette. Like, can we talk? I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. But she was like in character. She was like doing like the Lena, like the kind of staccato kind of um, clipped kind of language. And I was like, OK, she's got it, you know, and it's just a willing to kind of be this kind of like relentlessly. Um, cer- um, what's the word I want? Not quite cerebral, but just like um, like think thinking, not feeling kind of persona where she's always like writing the story in her head. She's not even listening to you, you know, give you what the story was. She's like writing it already. You know, she's always like, you know, her byline is always moving. She's always somewhere else, even if she's physically in one place. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and then her character is constantly being thrown off by what, what she's running into. Yeah. Um, and that happens in like the family sphere with mm-hmm. with her her, with, uh, her her father played by Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. who always kind of like surge to the front you yeah know, and, he's always yeah. great you know i love playing with him he's dick so dick was an interesting character because he's got to be charismatic he's got to be sexy he's got to be like alluring and again like it, like with elena you set up who he thinks he is so you think he's this in control wheeling dealing guy but he's this guy who dementia is starting to sell in you can't actually tell and so that's why the big turn was like seeing him in the bar meeting him you know and he's looking like his old self you know and you can imagine oh you can imagine him 20 years ago and and if this guy is this slick and this kind of like assured who he must have been and then you see the state of his house where she goes to his house and it's completely in disarray and she's literally walking inside the reality of who her father actually is you know he's not the guy at the bar he's this guy but maybe he's both you know so it's like that kind of thing of like thinking that you know someone and don't and so for the audience same thing dick bombs in flicking nuts out the bowl we think okay we're and for this kind of ride but then he's actually this very vulnerable kind of fragile um character get your copy of our january february 2020 issue of film comment featuring our best of the decade extravaganza with essays by dennis Lim, amy taubin devika garish and r emmett sweeney the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s along with filmmakers critics and programmers picks of the decade also an in-depth interview with pedro costa director of vitalina varela opening at film at lincoln center and our best of the year poll including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019 Plus, Alex Ross Perry on screenwriting, Phoebe Chen on NYFF sensation Martin Eden, Albert Serra on the scandalous Liberté, along with the reviews, articles, and columns that make every issue of Film Comment a must-read. Support nonprofit, independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. Actors, I, I was very interested in seeing mm-hmm. in, in this movie. I wonder if you could talk a bit about Mel Rodriguez. Yeah, that, that but also Eddie Gethaki. Yeah, so Mel Rodriguez, I love. I worked with him on the sci-fi thing called Kill All Others. We did a couple years ago. I knew from then he was just like an extraordinary actor and can do anything. And so I like him as this like imposing kind mm-hmm. of like but still like weirdly charming kind of guy, you know, and he wanted to make the character Cuban. I'm like, go for it. And so he got the he's got the beads, he's got the he's got this kind of like 
overly machismo, like swagger, and he's definitely like dangerous. But then the, in the moment where he admits he's not in charge, like we don't believe him. Was like, no, of course you're in charge, you know. And so um, I love Mel, and I first met him as a comedic actor, but he has these like serious dramatic tropes, which I figured out when we did Kill All Others Together. And then Eddie Gathegi, I saw him at like an acting showcase for NYU, like. I don't know, like 10 years ago, like I just graduated and he played like an 80 year old man. He did like a monologue as an 80 year old man and I'm in the front row and like I believed him as an 80 year old man. I'm sitting five feet away. So from that, I was like, I got to work with this guy and hadn't found like the right project. But for this, I needed like an elegance for Jones. I need like an elegance. I needed like a, um, like a knowingness, kind of like a toughness. And he brought that where you could see him, you know, as kind of just like, one of many kind of like henchmen, but also you see this intelligence, he's this fierce intelligence in his eyes and like this kind of elegance and grace in his way. And then um, Rosie Perez, just all for all my, I needed like a wise kind of seeing, you know, I, the direction I gave them was like, you know, it took you 30 years to get this job and like Elena got there in 10, you know? So there's that underlying thing of like, almost had like a harder road because of all the isms we know about, but she's still able to kind of like see Elena and like, you know, take her in and be friends with her and she has a lover. And so just expanding her world that she's a woman who like has her own life as an artist, you know, beyond the paper. Yeah, no, I, 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 I always just, I always love when she comes on screen. <laughs> yeah, and she and she's like the audience, like the catching up. She's like the wait, yeah. what, where, what are you doing? Who is so and so? It's like you know, she's great, the great common sense figure, and then she goes to like you know, interrogate Treat and goes to like find out Dick. She's like the the pragmatic one, the practical one, you know. And if Elaine had just listened to Alma, she'd be alive, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um. Just going back a bit to to the the, the source uh, material, mm -hmm. um, did you talk with Joan Didion at all? No, I didn't. I just like she saw the film at the end, and oh, you know, oh, as far as I know, gave it her blessing. Yeah, yeah, so that's it. Yeah, but no, it was like she really just let us have it, which is great. And so Marco went in and like you know did the script, and I came in toward the end to polish and change a few things, and that was it. And so did the end, the end product. But yeah, I, because yeah. when I was I was not familiar with the entire timeline of of her career. And I began to wonder, you know, you always wonder, why is this book written at this time? Why is a movie made at this time? Mm -hmm. And I think she wrote this after she'd been working in, on a Hollywood screenplay for a long time with yeah. her husband. And so I always wonder if part of that is in the experience of the character of being thrown into something that's like this maelstrom, you know? Yeah, yeah know. she and her husband like wrote a lot for her, like Hollywood, which I yeah. think is interesting because she gets it. And there's one section of the book where she's describing Elena going to meet Barry. And it's like, it's great. It's like, what we want here is a wide shot yeah. medium. Elena's pacing the docks with a scarf. So I like love that like meta kind of touch that's in the book where she's like then like writing it almost like a screenwriter. And it's always making you know that we're seeing Elena from above. We're seeing Elena from afar. So Didion's... Um, way helps us always keep that critical distance she's always a journalist and like i feel like the writing itself is very journalistic in a way yeah well that that that's another interesting thing. the the, uh, the journalist character um there have been a lot of movies with journalists and it's it's interesting perspective because you get someone who's a witness to history mm -hmm. um but in this case it's someone who's putting herself in the history as well um i mean how do you think that that kind of perspective has changed because i guess john didion's kind of is sort of, I don't know, originally the, like a new journalism kind mm -hmm. of tradition. Yeah. How is that, what is that like now when like a lot of people uh, are, are, are like, I don't know, there's a, there's a more first person approach, um, but I'm not sure, to, how does that differ for what, you know, Joan Didion has been doing? Well, it was clear that for this story, at least, I didn't want to do the typical hero journalist thing. Mm -hmm. Like that's not what I was after. I was after like this kind of like 
unraveling woman or tortured woman and like what her like what she's willing to do like she's willing to go inside the story kind of thing and also want to show like the messiness of the world like we're on that plane like it probably smells like fart and they're not I mean, this like noble journalist they're like misbehaved you know so i wanted to go into the messiness of the world and the sexism of that world and then also and so that also gives you a sense of elena's character in it and then also the fact that she's willing to kind of like you know in the opening sequence, like the risky thing she does just to get a piece of paper to a guy like in another city, you know, and, and the, the the peril in which she kind of like strategically places herself in. So for me, and even like that really informed us even with, you know, fictionalizing the paper because in the book, it's like the Washington Post, but I really wanted to like fictionalize it and make it like completely different. So we had complete freedom to like change it. So it's not the typical, you know, you know, journalism going to save the day stories like this woman who is in it you know, for motives that are unknown to herself in a way and that aren't entirely journalistic, you know, is partly like selfish she wants to know, you know, it's like she doesn't even know why she's there. And I think that part is what makes it edgy and interesting that it's not this kind of like, I have the answer and I'm gonna, you know, expose the truth. It's like, partly I wanna protect my dad, you know what I mean? Which would be at cross odds, you know, and partly because I wanna know for myself and partly because I wanna be right, you know? And so it's like Elaine like wants to be right versus like really know what's going on oh you already brought up bobby pikowski i was going to talk about just choosing him for for this and his work yeah so bobby's from new york too and like you know from like and grew up in 70s new york and so i just knew he had that sensibility and so with him i worked with him on like a mini series and so it's more his way you know and like he was like the only reason why you know i felt protected on that one set and so i just wanted to work with him as like a sensitive sympathetic you know character who is not who's who's comfortable doing things differently who's comfortable breaking the rules and who's comfortable like really putting the characters first you know putting the characters over the image and and so bobby was that and like i said like his references he has like the 70s new york you know he has that like in him and was able to pull that and reference that and like he just has like a really um humanistic sensibility that um I love in the photography. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie is deeply empathetic in the sense that you're so close to her perspective, but there's also shocking (laughs) stuff in it. Like I really admire that. I mean, I don't want to single this out Mm -hmm. because it's such a small thing, but there are like a couple of bits of violence where I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's real. (laughs) You know, what do you think uh, is going to surprise people most about um, what, what, how you've uh, interpreted the story or or what you've chosen to change as well? I think what um, might surprise people is the pace of it. You know, because you go from like daydreaming moments to like quickness, you know, so Elaine's in her head and next second she's like running. So like the erraticness of the pace, um, I think what will surprise people is like how I like big ensembles. So that won't be a surprise, but how deeply each person feels unmoored, like even Treat doesn't feel to have the answer. Jones is, you know, maybe the most kind of, Jones and Alma are the most like solidly rude, rude characters. Even Dick doesn't have the answer. So I think the characters will surprise them in that nobody's who we think they are when we first kind of meet them. But just the pacing of it, the the jarringness of it, and like the, um, you know, we can go deeply personal to then like, you know, completely detached, you know, within like a matter of a couple of shots. And so that kind of push-pull thing I think will maybe surprise people and hopefully keep people guessing. Yeah. Um, And just along those lines, I'm wondering, not that, you know, filmmakers are always thinking about other movies, but I am curious if there are any movies that have that kind of approach that you like. Yeah, I think like um, like Network has that kind of feel where everyone's mm-hmm. talking to each other is fast, 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 yeah. you know, and then um, like Parallax View where it's like you don't know what's happening, the characters know what's happening and like 
in the edit, it's a big deal. So Marco Kometun is the editor and also worked with this on, with um, Piet- Pietro Scalia, who's coming, who did JFK. So it was great to work with like a bunch of different editors on like how to like get into this, how to like, you know, kind of like subvert what your expectation is. And um, Dylan Titchener, who did Boogie Nights, came in and like, you know, did a week on it. So it was like just fun to like figure out, you know, because it's so faceted to kind of bring different voices that could bring a different like facet. And so Pietro brought like the historical context, like, you know, the opening with the archival. Cause like for me, I'd be like, oh God, no archival, archival is a cheat. But when he did this, like, oh yeah, actually this is good, you know? And then um, Dylan bought just like the, some of the tightness, like there's like, there's sequences like that I love that are like cut out of it, you know, but it's kind of like that kind of like rapid fire, you know, feel and Mako as always brings, you know, the performances and the sensibility and the internality. And so it's basically mostly her cut. So this was a different way of working for me because the genre is so, it, it required such sharp turns. Which feels very true to, to the, to the book. Um, also in the book has, you were talking about uh, repetitions. Mm-hmm. It's also so much contingencies. Like yeah. every, it's descriptions where it's like, it could be this or it could be this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love, I love that way of writing either yeah. is this or is that, or is, I love, and I love how she leaves it all in. Like, so you see the cross outs, you see this, like, I, I love, I love that way of writing. Like I just love it in all her work. And then, um, and I, cause I think it's kind of pointing to like, there is no one truth there is no one is there is no one why your is or your why or your truth is depending on how you see it you know so like i, I love that about her work and taking the camera back on in terms of um of your your career was, was was there something that uh you wanted to do really differently with this mm-hmm. film um versus your your past work what did you want to try new in this one i know we've talked about a lot yeah. of things but i'm curious yeah yeah for me i wanted to like i wanted to get international you know so i wanted to get out of the country in this narrative you know in this story- storytelling so that's the thing i wanted to do i wanted to get across the borders finally and um i wanted to but for me thematic i'm still attracted to like identity and like at the end of the day people are all these characters are figuring out like who they are or who they're going to be in relationship to each other it's like that's the common theme but just getting a broader scope you know how you know as human beings, like we make any story about us, you know? And so I like taking a step back about the bigger picture and it's about us as a country, you know, and about like US imperialism and this bigger, bigger thing that we see in macro, but that plays out in the way like a reporter should treat another reporter, you know, on a plane kind of thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, I mean that, I was thinking about that just because we're, you know, in terms of history, it's always like, I feel like particular emotions are associated with certain periods of history, but they were, those emotions got set in place at a certain point in time. Yeah. Now we're like 35 years on from that. Like I mean, 20 years from Didion, maybe at that point there was some like pathos or I don't want to say self-pity, but I mean, it's not that anymore, you yeah. know, about it. So what is it now? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like then the thing I sparked to was like this idea of like upness. So it's like for me, I think of the 80s is like very up, like caffeine, cocaine, very up, but numb, you know, like awake, but numb, you know. And now I would maybe argue maybe we're more depressive now than we were then. I don't know. But I like this kind of like paranoia, you know, that we had in the 80s. Like, wait, what's happening? Wait, do we know? We think we know, you know, like that kind of like and we think we're modern, but we're so like you look at the technologies like, oh, we're so not. But it felt like this relentless drive toward modernity and this like relentless kind of like, you know, um, need to be like superior, you know, Mm -hmm. and we're not at all. So, yeah, yeah. the telex. Yeah, the telex machine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, finishing with maybe the obligatory question, yeah. but what what are you going to be shooting next? Or what are you, where are you going to be yeah. in a month from now? <laughs> I tell you like what I want to be doing, which may not be what I am doing. What I want to do is this futuristic musical fantasy. 
So it's called The Kids' Exquisite Follies. And so we did a press release maybe like a year ago about it, but not a year ago, but yeah. So I want to do that because I want to go to the future where it's this, you know, artist journey where she goes from rags to riches to rags again and just with contemporary music. And as a kid, like my favorite musical was The Wiz, but otherwise I hated musicals. So this is a musical for people who hate musicals. Okay. That's what I want to do. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. No, that's also, I, yeah, I've been feeling a real need for, for musicals. I, I, I was reading just great interviews with you about Mudbound and, and the research you did for that. So I'm curious what you might have been, you know, looking into for this. For this, I read some of Didion's other work. So she did a piece on, on Salvador, like an essay on Salvador. So it was like reading her, her other works was the research, you know, honestly. And then kind of like, and then I did the whole research, like what exactly happened in the Contra scandal? And there's like 10 different explanations, 10 different like websites. And I finally came to, okay, we're never going to explain this. And, you know, maybe that's not the point anyway. And so just kind of like understanding like what exactly was happening and like how you can talk about imperialism without talking about exactly, you know, without having to lay out for the audience cause and effect for every single thing. We kind of understand broad strokes, the cause and the effect. So that whole thing. And then also understanding politically like what was happening in um, in Salvador and understanding politically what was happening in, you know, um, that that was like most of the research and then a lot of it we had to like throw out because it's like you can't explain the situation and have a character's interesting and have this plot you know all in one it just kind of has to be kind of interesting so yeah but the biggest discovery was like with Inbal Weinberg and like the production design like this whole like make America great again is like not a new idea it's like bring America back like that was a Reagan slogan so it's like holy shit like this has been said before you know but we now looking back we can see that for what it was you know it's kind of jingoistic you know um, nationalistic push but then it just felt like patriotism you know and now it's like horror so like i love the surprise of that you know yeah yeah i think you might be right about the depressive <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah all right well thanks so much for taking yeah, so much yeah. time to talk i really yeah, appreciate yeah. it thanks and for having congratulations me. and look forward to the premiere cool thanks for watching Thank thanks you. you've been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg Einge. you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Get your copy of our January-February 2020 issue of Film Comment, featuring our best-of-the-decade extravaganza with essays by Dennis Lim, Amy Taubin, Devika Girish, and R. Emmett Sweeney, the top 50 films and key new filmmakers of the 2010s, along with filmmakers, critics, and programmers' picks of the decade. Also, an in-depth interview with Pedro Costa, director of Vitalina Varela, opening at Film at Lincoln Center, and our annual Best of the Year poll, including write-ups of the 20 best films of 2019. Support nonprofit independent film journalism. Support Film Comment.